You're listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast of readings and archives from City Lights books and publishers. To learn more, visit www.citylights.com. So hey everybody, Peter Maravellis here. I hope this finds you all safe and well in these crazy, crazy times. On behalf of City Lights booksellers and publishers, I'd like to welcome you to City Lights Live, the virtual reading series that continues in the footsteps of our in-store calendar during the shelter in place. We continue to celebrate the works of authors we know and love with readings, discussions, and forums throughout the fall season and into the winter. Uh, For those of you that don't know already, City Lights has reopened its doors to the public. Following San Francisco Health Department guidelines, we aim to make your visit to City Lights as safe as possible. Please do come and visit us. Uh, You'll be able to once again browse our stacks. Our business hours are seven days a week from 12 noon to 8 p.m. We've uh, worked very hard to transform the store for the age of COVID. The entrance is now on the Broadway side of the building. It's actually at 271 Columbus. The original entrance is now an exit only. Uh, We do encourage everyone, please do wear facial covering while visiting. Uh, We're making our efforts to kind of keep things safe for everybody. So as many of you know, City Lights is a publishing house as well as a bookstore. We continue to publish in the grand tradition of Lawrence Ferlinghetti's seminal Pocket Poet series. Uh, We continue to produce on a seasonal basis, new books of poetry, fiction, literature and translation, and nonfiction informed by a progressive political outlook. Uh, We have new titles out from David Barsamian, from Stan Cox, also a very timely book, by Alan Hirsch about our current electoral crisis. Also a new book by the uh, 21st Poet Laureate of the United States, Juan Felipe Herrera, as well as new poetry from Uchi Naduka and Sophia Dahlin in the Spotlight Poetry Series. So to learn more about our books, as well as our open coming events, uh, please visit us on our website at www.citylights.com. Um, you can also keep up on our activities on social media. We have a presence on Instagram, on Twitter, on Facebook, Uh, You can also subscribe to our newsletter and receive weekly updates on new City Lights releases as well as all our up and coming events. So uh, we're also happy to announce that our neighbor Vesuvio Cafe is also open for business. Uh, They have set up chairs up in Kerouac Alley. So please come on down, um, buy a beer and a book. Uh, So tonight we are thrilled to be hosting Mauro Javier Cardenas celebrating the launch of his new novel titled Aphasia. It's published by our friends over at uh, Ferrar Strauss Giroux. Marrow is the author of The Revolutionaries Try Again, which the New York Times called an original insubordinate novel. Uh, in 2017, the Hay Festival included him in uh, Bogota 39, a selection of the best young Latin American novelists working today. Uh, we've hosted Marrow before at City Lights, uh, usually takes on the role of interlocutor. So we're really, really happy to actually have him and be hosting him for his very own book. Uh, and really, a really awesome book it is. So he's going to be joined in conversation by Carlos Fonseca. Uh, Carlos is a lecturer in Latin American literature and culture at Trinity College in the University of Cambridge in the UK. He is the author of Colonel Lagrimas, published by Restless Books, and Natural History, published by Farrar Strauss Giroux. Uh, in 2016, he was named one of the 20 best Latin American writers at the Guadalajara Book Fair. And in 2017, he was included in the Bogota 39 list of best Latin American writers under 40. So tonight you will be able to purchase copies of both Mauro and Carlos's books via the link we're gonna be posting in the chat function of our Zoom room. Uh, It can be activated by scrolling over the buttons in the dashboard at the bottom of your screens. Uh, You can also use that same function to ask questions. We're gonna have a Q and A at the end. So please welcome Mauro Javier Cardenas and Carlos Fonseca. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much, Peter. Uh, Mauro, so good to see you. How are you? Good to see you too. Hey, and uh, uh, hello to everybody from all over the world and uh, my compatriots from Ecuador uh, that I see. Uh, also, uh, if uh, I know that we're in the middle of waiting for results for the election, uh, if uh, any states get called while we're talking, please post it in the <laughs> chat so that we can uh, celebrate. Uh, exactly. I'm, I'm so grateful for everybody, also to City Lights, for hosting this event. There's so much happening right now, but like, uh, I guess the people here know what's really important, Mauro, which is your book, right? 
uh, <laughs> I'm uh, celebrating it today. Like I must say, you know, it's a magnificent, like stylistically, formally innovative book. To, like one of the best books that I have read this year. I have told you many times, so I'm like happy to be able to say it out loud and in public. Uh, <laughs> and just kind of like uh, background information for everybody. Back in the day, like I think uh, three or four months ago, Mauro and me we were just basically speaking through WhatsApp and trying to like figure out what kind of tied our both of our books together. And we came, or basically Mauro came with this like great idea of like narrative potentiality. Basically, like we're both, it seems, Mauro, that we're both interested in how like literature proliferates from literature, how like storytelling proliferates from storytelling and writing kind of like just like acts like a machine that produces more writing. And the interesting for, thing with like Mauro's novel, Aphasia, is that this kind of narrative potentiality or like uh, proliferation stems precisely from an erasure or a sense of like an absence of the very sense of it. And that's maybe like where I wanted to start talking to you about uh, the novel, Mauro, like tell me a little bit about this idea of a potentiality or like a proliferation that kind of like starts from an erasure. Something has happened to the protagonist, something horrible um, to his sister. And it is around that absence that like kind of you build this like never ending kind of like proliferation of stories? Yeah. Um, I, I think the concept of erasure, um, you know, has been in my mind even even in my first novel. Um, actually, it was there was a failed experiment where what I would do is I would write a sentence and I would put a statement in parentheses and then I would blank it out. And then the next morning, uh, I would read a sentence again and try to react to that blank. Um, uh, and that did it a few times. It didn't quite work. It didn't make it into the, the novel, but I was really sort of interested in that notion that, you know, many of us sort of go through life uh, in our brain for whatever reason, whether it's because of, you know, the, the sort of the, the psychological explanation is that your brain erases sort of traumatic experiences yeah. because uh, it tries to help you remain alive and so on. It's a really bizarre concept actually, right? Um, but there are many reasons why um, the brain erases kind of uh, situations that happen to you that are unpleasant. Uh, and of course, it also erases things that are not unpleasant. It just, your brain just erases things almost random sometimes, it feels like. Um, and, and so I was always very interested in that notion um, from a narrative perspective, meaning like oftentimes in fiction, uh, we pretend that we remember a scene. So a character remembers a scene from his childhood and the scene is fully realized, right? Like the character like, you know, has all the senses engaged in the scene, like everything, you know, the dialogue, all of it is kind of laid out in sort of traditional fashion as if the character can remember the scene completely. And it's, that's just not my experience. Like I can't remember mm -hmm. a lot of things and I can't, and the things that I remember are little pieces, right? And of course, and this is, not surprising uh, is that they get sort of connected to things that happen after. So the memory is always being associated. And so it's almost like a memory that has all these erasures proliferates by the fact that they are things that you read, they are movies yeah. you watch, they are, they are sort of uh, art objects that start connecting to that sort of erased, partially erased memory. Um, and you don't do it on purpose, right? It's almost like you're just yeah. connecting all these things. And then, uh, and I'm not even talking about the writing. I'm just talking about how, how I feel my brain works sometimes. But then in the writing, what you're trying to do is to say, okay, you know, um, if I am gonna do away with sort of uh, the sort of traditional way of creating scenes, and I'm really gonna focus on the character's sort of emotional impulses. Um, and if that impulse is to forget, to yeah. erase, and at the same time to exist with those erasures, then uh, the idea of proliferation helps, right? Because you can take a, a very minute memory or a, an erasure uh, and then connect it to all these different things, right? Yeah. And uh, something that strikes me as interesting from the novel is the fact that like, 
in order to like build such a complex structure, you kind of have to like tear everything apart, right? So you have to like tear away, like so we talked before about like tearing away like traditional notions of psychology or traditional notions of realism within the novel. And um, uh, you bring this into play within the novel when you mentioned the, the idea of an architecture by this magnificent guy that I had never heard of until like I read Aphasia. <laughs> And I loved his work, which is Richard Greaves. So I thought perhaps it would be good for us to like do some readings and then I, I can ask you so people get a sense of like, what is this like proliferating style that we're talking about and who is this guy, Richard Greaves, that like was uh, kind of influential in like at least how I read what you're doing. Definitely. So that's, I believe, like page around page 26. Page 26. Okay. All right. So this is a this is actually from the first chapter uh, that I wrote in the book, uh, and it's the chapter that starts with a very simple impulse, which is Antonio is pondering his relationship to nature, uh, his non-relationship to nature, uh, because he is thinking about submitting an essay to a magazine, right? Um, and so I'll read I'll read um, from page twenty-six. He searches through uh, his The Alternative Guide to the Universe catalog and finds that the artist responsible for the vague garbological assemblages Antonio has been associating with the decision management hub that has shuttered his window into nature is called Richard Greaves, who apparently studied theology and hotel management and quit his job to dedicate himself to assembling his own asymmetrical visions of the world out of abandoned barns, coffee makers, Nick shovels computer keyboards, all razors, twine, rope. A nail stops the evolution, Richard Greaves says, but a rope is patient. Parsing discarded objects in the forests of Quebec based on his nebulous linkages to them, Antonio writes. And as Antonio marvels at how what seemed like an incondite associative thread turned out to be quite pertinent to his reflections about his non-relationship to nature, he imagines Richard Greaves spreading his cargo of trash on a kitchen table trying to find linkages between gnarled tricycles, giant tacks, newsletters about toolboxes, recognizing that this image of Richard Greaves has its origins in Vertigo by W.G. Siebel. And here Antonio searches online inside Vertigo for the world, the word table, and finds the passage that according to him describes his own method of composition. I sat at a table near the open terrace door, W.G. Siebel writes, my papers and notes spread out around me, drawing connections between events that lay far apart, but which seem to me to be of the same order. So that's wonderful because like, I think there like you indirectly tell us a little bit about your procedure as well, right? Mm -hmm. So like when I, I remember when I read the novel at the, at the, the first time I said, okay, so like what Mauro is doing is a little bit like the architecture of like uh, Richard Greaves. He's tearing everything apart and kind of building for him like this, like, uh, debris or ruins that are left behind. And I also like that idea from WG Seabolt of kind of spreading everything and trying to find the constellations of meaning that could like be produced. And I remember that back in the day when, when I offered my blurb in which I said something around the idea of like, well, what he's doing is like the architecture of Richard Greaves. Then two weeks afterwards, I looked at the cover and I was like, oh my goodness, people are going to think I didn't read, read the novel because it's literally like what I described in the blurb. But, uh, but I guess that means that like, first of all, the cover artist was a really good cover artist. Uh, also get, had the same type of reading of the novel. And, and second of all, I guess I have to show today that I have read the novel. So that's, uh, <laughs> that's also a good impulse, Mauro. But tell me a little bit about uh, Richard Greaves, who was he and how we could think of the novel through the lens of like that idea of an architecture or perhaps the idea that you bring into play with regards to Seabolt and the papers were uh, laid out in the floor. Yeah, definitely. So I saw... Uh... Richard Greaves' work in London, actually, many years ago, in, in that exhibit, um, and I, I was I was very moved by by it, by kind of the messiness of it. the The exhibit was actually about the alternative sort of guide to the universe. It was really about all these sort of idiosyncratic uh, individuals that were outside of the art world, that were never really considered artists, uh, you know, uh, through the traditional mm. sort of art galleries or museums. Uh, and there were all these strange sort of works that 
these very lonely people have done. I remember there was one woman who was a homeless woman that her, uh, the, what they were showing was she would go into a photo booth uh, and she would uh, put on different outfits and yeah. she would then uh, take pictures of it. So uh, the whole sort of wall was, you know, this, this homeless woman and the, that had, anyway, so it was that kind of art. And it was many years before that image of uh, the Richard Greaves art came into uh, the book. And it came the same way that, uh, that anything comes into the book, which is I, start, I started that sentence simply by saying, okay, what happens if I put this guy called Antonio who uh, works uh, you know, at a bank uh, and an investment company and he's, he's trying to write about his relationship to nature, right? So that's the first step. Yeah. Then I say, then I, then I, as I write, I realize, okay, his relationship to nature is no relationship to nature. He does not re remember anything about nature. He doesn't, nature plays no role whatsoever in his, in his mind or in his writing, right? So that takes away, that immediately gave me the cue. Okay, so in this novel, setting is out, right? Because he doesn't relate to setting in that context. The second one is yeah. that as I was writing it, the rule is that, you know, I can't, I don't map out the sentence before I start. All I know is that there's an impulse. In this case, the impulse to write about nature, right? Yeah. Very general in a way. And then that impulse starts bringing stuff along. Every morning when I wake up, I was like, okay, now I have this, this piece. Now I'm going to write about what comes next. And it has to be whatever comes to mind. And so Richard Greaves came to mind very, huh. very quickly. So I wrote about that. And then Sable came to mind. So I wrote about that. <laughs> uh, and then it's like those pieces start adding up, right? They start adding up, starting up. Um, and the Sable sort of, you know, that image had been in my mind for a long time, right? That notion of, you know, organizing uh, your work through kind of almost like a seance, right? You know, how does this relate to one another? Um, and part of what I like about that method is that I have felt that in fiction, oftentimes novels feel to me over-engineered when it comes to the structure. Mm -hmm. That, you know, I was actually reading this book on cognitive science recently where like, it was arguing that like certain words have a concept and that concept already locks in the language that goes with it. Like when you say like the word trauma, right? For instance, yeah. right? It locks already in your mind a certain amount of concept associated with trauma, a certain amount of language, a certain amount of grammar associated with it. And so yeah. it becomes really boring, right? Because you already kind of know what the cloud that relates to the concept is, right? And so uh, for me, being able to write in that way where I'm not sort of, um, you know, when I have a lot of freedom within the sentence, it's really what I was after, right? It's like that the reader will be excited about the fact that he doesn't know or she doesn't know when the sentence is going to end, where is it going to go next, where yeah. is it going to veer to from Greaves to Sable to the sister um, to the you know Bellsman, the Bell Bondsman calling, Anton, you know what I mean? So all of that right. happens very naturally in an almost kind of uh, I would say, you know, a free jazz kind of way, you know? Yeah. Mauro, and tell me, now that you mentioned jazz, I remember you telling me here in London that like, um, that you started experimenting with like how you could like, what with different lengths of sentences. And if I'm not mistaken, you told me something around the lines of like, and I figured out that like, the perfect length for me was like, what was it, 1,500 for this book or something? Yeah, 1,500, yeah, yeah. 1,500, yeah, so like, tell me a little bit how you got to that, first of all, like, yeah, like, what was the exercise like, and like, would you do that sort of like exercise of reading out loud, or was it just something that went through silence, or yeah? Yeah, what, what, I, what I noticed was that when you're trying, when you write these sentences, that are not necessarily, uh, their goal is not to advance a certain narrative, right? Yeah. I mean, even in Krasnahorka, right? Certain sentences have a, a role of advancing the story of the character. And of course, there's all kinds of deviations, but it's serving, it, it is pushing things forward. But when you're not writing a sentence or trying to push anything forward other than to exhaust the impulse that you're after, right? Mm -hmm. um, then what I noticed is that for most of the impulses that I was choosing as a starting point for the sentences, that 
uh, around 15, you know, 100 words was where I ran out of steam, mm. where, uh, where I, whenever I got to like 2000, 3000, like I would have to like, the, what came after the 1500 mark was not as alive as what came before. And so roughly when I started then looking at my sentences, I thought that the ones that I liked best were the ones that were around that length, meaning that the concept that I seem to be picking to sort of dramatize in these kind of sentences didn't lend themselves to more than that. So it was almost like, it wasn't that I planned it for the second book. It's just, I noticed that that was the way it was happening. For yeah. the third book, I did sort of say, you know, whenever I go beyond that, I had to be very careful to make sure that uh, I'm not just adding, uh, that, that I'm not losing the steam. And, uh, and so it's roughly 1500 words from the third one, like almost every sentence. You know, which other book it reminded me of yours would be like Too Loud a Solitude? Because mm -hmm. there is also that idea of like somebody just receiving kind of like uh, book information from everywhere and kind of like in a garbage sort of way, like Richard Greaves trying to make something out of it, right? For this kind of like voice or monologue that pushes forward while also delaying something. But talking a little bit about delay, at the end of the day, this is a novel about delay. This is a novel that like in that sense, like, um resembles a, a thousand and one nights even like Borges's El Milagro Secreto right delaying something that is going to happen right through storytelling so in that sense uh it would be great for us to hear you read from page 36 just a kind of like short excerpt there all right here we go this is from a chapter called The Revisionist by Helen Schulman. Uh, there is a, a number of chapters in the book that are titled after a short story uh, because there's Antonio reading the short story. So this is Antonio reading a short story called The Revisionist. Why not not do something as inevitable as being home on time for dinner, Antonio reads. Not remembering having read this or any other thought from Harish Leather, I don't know how to pronounce that name, the protagonist of The Revisionist which Antonio has been rereading for almost a decade. And although he doesn't ever remember too many specifics from The Revisionist, he does remember the short fiction as one, a performance of delay, two, too dependent on his reversal at the end, three, paradoxical because despite knowing about two, he always cries in the end. And of course, once he rereads The Revisionist, as he's doing now, Hirsch leader delay becomes less about one, two, three, and more about Hirsch leader's desire to delay his trajectory back home. So good. So there we get, we first we get like this idea of like uh, the failure of memory, right? Not remembering, which you had mentioned before. And then this idea of the performance of delay, right? And that in a way is like how I see the novel as well. Like, you know, there is this storytelling that is delaying at least like blocking that kind of traumatic event that you mentioned at the beginning. So tell us a little bit about perhaps delay and how it works within the, within aphasia. Yeah, definitely. So there is the, uh, another novel by uh, Sable uh, Austerlitz that uh, had a big influence on the book. Um, it, it gets mentioned in a few places in the book, but uh, it has a bigger effect structurally. As you know, in Austerlitz, the first half of Austerlitz is probably my favorite uh, hundred pages in, in all of the literature. Uh, Austerlitz is talking to a stranger, to the narrator. They met casually, right, in a train station. And the conversation is mostly about architecture, right? They talk about the architecture of translations, they talk about the architecture of fortresses. Um, and you as a reader have no idea uh, what, the, what the story is about. There is, there is no explanation why he's talking about fortresses and so on. And it's only right in the middle of a, of a novel that you know, the narrator runs into Austerlitz again and Austerlitz tells him like, oh yeah, uh, I yeah. just remembered I was in the train station that was about to be destroyed. And I remember that I was one of those kids during World War II that was sent from Germany to, to England. Uh, and, and I didn't remember. I didn't remember that I had different parents. Uh, so this very sort of traumatic event that was completely erased from him was driving a lot of the conversation and the fact that he was sort of uh, driven towards these, these sort of subjects that were related, right? Because the train station was a train station yeah. where you know, he had to go through when he was a kid. The fortresses were actually uh, later Nazi kind of uh, jails. So 
I was always very um, interested in figuring out uh, how do you how do you do that, right? How do you write about something without writing about something? Uh, and it could be, it it can turn to be it could be it could turn to be really awful too, right? Because like then it comes to almost like a game. It's like oh, how do I write about this without writing about that, yeah. right? And so in aphasia, the first half. Uh, that's actually a middle point, exactly a middle point where the novel changes. Um, the first half is really about Antonio finding ways to not think about his sister, right? Mm -hmm. So he thinks about, uh, you know, former uh, uh, girlfriends. He, he thinks he reads these books that are, uh, and the stories are related to those. So there's a lot of freedom in that section, right? But it's also like all kind of like gravitating around the subject of the fact that his sister is missing, that his, uh, his sister... Um, has lost her ability to distinguish between reality. Um, and um, and so it's at the middle point of the novel where he falls asleep and in a dream, uh, he re it's a, what's called a reenactment dream where he's yeah. reenacting a conversation that he had, uh, a very painful conversation he had with uh, his sister when she was kind of in this sort of uh, altered state of mind. So I think that, it, and it's interesting because the second part, it clearly that's when you know he connects with his sister again on the phone and and then and so on. So there's there is that shift in the novel in a way, um, but I think that's where it comes from, right? And and less, I would say from a less literary perspective is is really that I was very moved by the fact that you know finding sort of books that try to dramatize something that I've experienced while in my own life is just how certain erasures, you have to live with those erasures, right? Mm -hmm. And sometimes they come back, sometimes they don't come back, sometimes somebody tells you about it um, and uh, you're like, and you start imagining even though you don't remember, so. Yeah, that was like a little bit my experience of reading it because at the beginning I entered the book kind of trusting you, like you have to trust the narrative, right? And I was trusting your style particularly, which like, of course, like is, uh, is very impressive. And then I remember like one moment halfway through, as you mentioned, where I was like, no, this is something about something quite painful and like something quite profound, right? This is not just like a, a sort of game, as, as you were mentioning. Um, and in that sense, like it's a novel that constantly jumps between that kind of like very painful past and the present. And it kind of does this by like, you know, providing ways of like rewinding, right? And rewriting. Um, and uh, that idea of rewinding and fast forward kind of like comes across in like page 64. So, I thought maybe we could like, you could read from that excerpt and we could talk a little bit about it. Sure. There uh, we go. So this is the, uh, I don't think this one needs my, my explanation, but uh, Silvina is uh, a former uh, girlfriend of Antonio. <clears throat> All this, of course, Silvina reads, indeed his whole history originated in the distant past, said Corin. And here Antonio rewinds a recording of Silvina reading from War and War by Lasso Krasnohorkai, trying to remember where he recorded her. All this, of course, Silvina reads. Indeed, his whole history originated in the distant past, said Corin. No, Antonio thinks. He can't remember where he recorded her. So he rewinds the recording to the beginning again, listening to Silvina's voice again and thinking of Crap's last tape which he'd seen once by himself when he was still 25 or 22, and once years later with Dora. We lay there without moving, Crap uh, hears himself say, but under us all move, and move us gently up and down and from side to side. Rewinding to the same part of the recording where Crap talks about a woman lying stretched on the floorboards with her hands under her head, her eyes closed, the whole world moving under them, all of this, of course, Sabina reads. Indeed, his whole history originated in the distant past, said Korn. So wonderful. I, I just realized now, Mauro, that like since your sentences are so long, nobody's ever gonna like hear you even say like a whole sentence out loud, <laughs> which we must like ask forgiveness for, right? It's like, how does a sentence by Mauro Javier Cardenas actually sound? It's a, it's a mystery because it would take uh, two or three minutes to hear it. But uh, no, like, so, so I love this idea. Like, I think like Crap's Last Tape is definitely one of my favorite place from Beck and it's a very touching play in which like 
at the same time as being comic, crap keeps rewinding to that scene of the woman that like happened a long time ago. So tell us a little bit about this idea of rewinding and kind of re-narrating the past, which seems to be like somehow at play here, at least with what you're doing. Yeah, no, this is this is another one uh, of the situations that multiple elements came together across time uh, without me knowing it ahead of time. So one of the elements uh, that happened uh, many years ago was that I was volunteering to be a, a transcriber for an oral history project for uh, Boys of Witness for a Colombia project. It was uh, they were interviewing. Uh, survivors of the Civil War, people who have been displaced or that they've lost, uh, you know, loved ones. And uh, for for a few months, every Sunday, I would go to a cafe, I put these big headphones on, and I would listen to the audio of uh, these oral oral histories, uh, these these uh, uh, people that were being interviewed. And my role was to transcribe it in Spanish. Mm. And I wasn't very good at it, right? So I'd never done it before. And so they gave me this software where you can sort of easily rewind, right? But I was always doing that. I was this, I was so caught up with what they were saying that I would like, oh, crap, I need to rewind so I can transcribe. <laughs> and then I would do that, rewind and transcribe, right? And I did that for a long time. Uh, and so so that was one element. The other element is that I have seen Craft Last Tape a few times. Uh, and uh, And so... When it came to write that sentence, uh, I didn't plan it ahead. Those things came naturally, right? So this image of having someone listening to uh, somebody that uh, he used to love uh, reading a sentence, right? Immediately came to Craft's Last Day. So I was like, oh yeah, I watched Craft's Last Day. And Craft's Last Day became an image in my head. Uh, and then, you know, I realized later that the fact that the uh, I had spent all the time sort of transcribing also had an impact, right? Because then uh, not only in that passage, but in other passages where uh, he's listening to his mother, right? He's transcribing his mother, right? Uh, and so those are the things that actually, my favorite thing about writing is, is exactly that, where I started writing and I'm like, oh yeah, this image from 10 years ago can connect to this image from five years ago right, can connect to something I just imagined today, right? Uh, all those things connecting almost in the act of writing yeah. uh, is to me what is my favorite thing about, about writing. Yeah, in a way, like almost writing is your way of linking all of your, re your history as a reader as well, or as like a viewer of cinema or all of sort of art, different art forms, right? Uh, it reminded me a little bit because also when we were here talking in London, you mentioned, uh, what was it, Gerald Mournane's, uh, which book was the, the one about his readings? And Yeah, the, what, the history of books where he, uh, the history of books where he talks about the books he's read, but he never remembers the books he's read. What he remembers is what he was imagining while reading them, right? Um, which, which I found wonderful, right? Because it, it um, oftentimes in the book, in aphasia, uh, different moments, different readings, different books remind the character of, you know, not necessarily oftentimes the, uh, the language of, of what he's quoting, but, you know, what was happening, right? So I think there's a moment where he uh, quotes uh, Theodor Rotki, right? Like, I knew a woman loveling her bones. That really comes to mind because it reminds me of someone that he used to work with that uh, would uh, tell him uh, that his parents used to recite poetry to one another and that they used to recite uh, sort of that that poem, and then it connects to that sort of notion of, you know, because uh, uh, his coworkers sort of talked about like uh, being in a coma and like uh, sort of waking up, and then uh, you know, the doctor asking him like, so you you know, tell us something so we know you're you're functioning. And he started reciting poetry, and they thought he was he was crazy, right? Um, <laughs> anyway, so. Um, I forgot what I was trying to answer, but uh, <laughs> no, oh, but Morneau. yeah, Morneau, yes, that's right, yeah. Germano, that, that notion, yes. Um, and talking about those readings, one that like kind of like figures prominently and links you to a couple of like magnificent books that I have read recently would be Bernhard, right? So like three of like if they ask me three of the best books that I have read this year, what would tie them to be together would be Bernhard. So I'm thinking of like Katharina Boxmer's The Appointment 
which I yes. think we talked about. I'm thinking about Mark Haber's Reinhardt's Garden. And I'm thinking of your book as like kind of like a, a, a very beautiful triangle, like that has Bernhard somehow in the center. And even in the Latin American tradition, right? We have like amazing writers like Horacio Castellanos Moya or like Fernando Vallejo that also like take Bernhard as like the central kind of influence. And I have heard you in interviews talk a little bit about how correction uh, was fundamental for writing this book. So perhaps like, Tell us a little bit about that and like also how you, because I believe you have read also Volkmer's book and like uh, how oh, yeah. so it would be great to hear you like talk with regards to like what you're doing and like what you see them doing as well. Yeah, definitely. The, I think the, my relationship to correction probably has a few, a few different sort of uh, levels if we're going to call them. One is that um, I have felt that in that book, Bernhard does and I think Antonio mentions this uh, in the book, is that, that some of the recursiveness of uh, Bernhard in that book uh, is very similar to the ways that sometimes when somebody uh, is having uh, a psychotic attack and they are in, a, in an alter state of mind, that recursiveness is very similar, mm-hmm. right? And in fact, I remember reading that Bernhard was more, oftentimes borderline in that sort of situation, right? And that writing was his way of sort of calming himself down. So that's one layer. The second one is of course in correction, uh, the first half of correction has these very long sentences that are very musical, right? And uh, very fugal and wonderful. So that obviously had an impact uh, on on my own sentences. Uh, The the third one is that in the second part of correction, there is the the narrator is, going through his friend who committed suicide, going through his papers, right? Mm-hmm. And sifting and sorting them, right? So, and that connects to uh, senselessness by Moya, right? Where the character is actually editing yeah. a manuscript, right? So that notion of editing a manuscript or sort of uh, reacting to a manuscript came into aphasia, given that uh, the character is often, you know, reading a story or transcribing something, uh, so that relationship to text also was, I think, influential. Uh, I, I also think that, you know, I've been rereading Correction recently. I also think that uh, in that book, you know, once you get sort of past the prose and the musicality and like the ultra state of mind and all those things that that are, you know, the, the setup is quite painful mm-hmm. because the narrator, uh, you know, I didn't notice this the, the, the other times that I read it, like, the, the narrator is telling the story about his friend who committed suicide, who he had known since he was a kid. And they used to walk together to school uh, when they were little, barefoot. Uh, and, he's, and there were three of them, right? So Rosheimer, uh, and then uh, Hoyler, and then the narrator, the, all the three of them knew each other from they were kids. And the one who committed suicide went to the other friend's house to do all the work for the cone and his sister. So there's all this emotional stuff that Bernhard doesn't tell you explicitly, oh my God, it's so painful because this yeah. is my friend, blah, blah, blah. He just simply, he, he does tell you like, you know, we used to walk to school together and he does tell you, you know, one day we went to the, the school and one of the teachers had uh, hung himself, right? But he doesn't make, he doesn't necessarily make the connections for you. He just says like, yeah, and of course, maybe like this has some impact on him committing suicide later, but he never really melodramatizes any of that. It's just, um, and so I was very moved by by all that, that that um, that way that he can combine this sort of very high modernist, long sentence musical prose with like sort of a nihilist sort of negative, uh, you know, uh, all that combined with these, sort of very emotionally charged situation that he doesn't really talk about in emotionally charged language. Yeah, like, and that's, I feel like how a facial also works, right? Like in a way, like it has to kind of release itself from all of the common sense and melodrama that is already implied by how like we're just like made to function psychologically as human beings, even by the media and everything and how we're brought up. Uh, and it has to kind of backtrack or moonwalk its way back before it can like move forward and try to like really get at like the pain that is at the center of this 
this novel. And you have a, a wonderful phrase in the book that kind of like synthetically describes this, which you call the logic of un-understanding. So uh, it, it reminds me a little bit of like what you're saying, right? And how, you know, we have to kind of break loose of that common sense in order to really see like the pain that is the life below, right? I think so. I mean, I think that to me that connects uh, a lot with just some fundamental questions about, you know, I, I think we talked about this, right? The, um, you know, what, what is it that I want fiction to be for me, right? Uh, and, and what is it, what is the fiction for? Um, and, you know, although I, I, I think that it's not really a conceptual novel in the sense of like your novel, I think just like a novel, uh, you know, it's a conceptual novel um, because you remove psychology completely. I, I, in aphasia, unlike the, the one I'm writing right now, I, ha I hadn't yet removed all psychology. Right? There's still quite a bit of it, but it's, but it's through negation, right? And um, it's through trying to say, what is, it, what is it about this character or what has happened to him that he doesn't want to talk about mm -hmm. and that he will never be able to talk about in polite conversation to anyone? And that how do you dramatize that outside of the melodrama of those kinds of situations, right? I think there's a quote uh, from Grace Pelley in the book around sort of plot sort of taking all hope away because, you know, in psychology, like there's some things that we know from hundreds of years now, it feels like from reading Freud, right? That what happened to us when we were kids has an impact on us as adults, <laughs> right? The end, right? Um, and so it is accepting that, but at the same time in fiction, trying to get around that in some way, you know? Um, Mauro, now that you're talking about the third novel, tell us a little bit about the, that kind of like, how do you approach the different like projects? I do see like clearly some like stylistic similarities between like uh, the first novel and aphasia, uh, but tell us a little bit like, so it, because it does seem to be that you think about projects like punctually one at a time as like a different poetic, so. Perhaps just yeah. like talk a little bit about that. Yeah, you know what? I, what I've uh, what I realized is that um, so when I finished the first novel, um, you know, in a way, the biggest influence in my second novel was my first novel, because my first novel was an amalgamation of all the styles and books and things that I read that I liked, and so it was almost like condensation of all those influences. Mm -hmm. And then out of that, I distracted. You know, there's one sentence in particular in the first novel. Um, that has a style, where it has that impulse, a character that, that sort of talks about how he, uh, you know, even though uh, people think that, you know, the apparition of Virgin Mary was because of mass illusion, that he was still there and he saw things and so on. And so uh, that sentence, that is around uh, 1500 words. And I, I, I took that kind of sentence into the second one and say, okay, now I found this kind of sentence. Um, how do I then make that into a novel, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so that was kind of the relationship with the two. And the third one, um, it was really about, it's the same family, it's Antonio and the same family. Uh, but now in the third one, I take, I take that style even to the extreme where I take even more things out and everything's a monologue. So there's no more of these, you know, in my face, there's a few sentences uh, at the beginning, especially that kind of give you like, that yeah. introduce you to like what's happening, it starts with a monologue, right? Just somebody, uh, I think it started with uh, a character, uh, Antonio's uh, daughter saying, take him, who needs mm -hmm. a father anyway? Because in the third book, uh, a lot of Latin Americans have been deported. Antonio has been deported. One of his daughters left uh, back to Colombia. And so it's like almost like a surrealist oral history. And in the fourth one, the one that I'm working on right now is Antonio again, sort of says, I am tired of writing about loss and trauma and all these things. What is it that I can write about if I take that out of a novel? So now we're in conceptual sort of uh, so, novel territory, right? Uh, Mauro, now that you mentioned Latin America, I know this is like a kind of like a stereotypical question, but like, so you write in English, but nonetheless, you write with these very long sentences that sound, look more Latin American in style that like, uh, than kind of like English in a way. Um, tell me a little bit about your relationship with like Latin American literature. We have like amazing authors here like Gabriela Aleman, Claudia Hernandez. So uh, 
that write, uh, write in Spanish. So tell us a little bit about your relationship to that tradition and the decision to write in English. Yeah, you know, it's, uh, it's interesting because this is something that uh, Claudia and I, I think, have uh, talked talk about at some point where um, my decision to write in English, um, for whatever reason, when I was young, I was like, oh, I'll write in English and show those Americans, you know. <laughs> uh, I don't know if that's how I was. You know, I, I really can't sort of, I, I can give you different answers depending on the day. I don't remember anymore exactly why. Um, I didn't know anything about publishing, right? So I figured, well, if I'm here, you know, I might as well write in English, right? But <laughs> whatever, whatever the reason, the decision to write in English uh, gave me some options and, and shut off some other options. The options that, that actually kind of were off the table were trying to um, uh, capture the orality of English from different regions, mm -hmm. right? Like how people speak in one region versus another, Uh, something that other writers like Claudia does, right? Where like she tries to capture the orality of a certain region uh, uh, and a certain country. That was completely off the table for me because uh, it's not something that I was interested in uh, and that's not how I relate to English. Uh, what it was, you know, and the part that's exciting is that because my relation to English uh, doesn't have that sort of like, you know, in Spanish, like every word or uh, a lot of the words are have a sort of like a, a tree of associations, right? Like the word madre, the uh, patio, all those things, you know, all those words have connections to kind of your life in Latin America, my life in Latin America. And so they, they, those connections have limit, create limitations where in English, I had less of those. And so it's almost like I had the freedom to construct this all this, this, this syntax that mm -hmm. was almost like artificial in a way, because those sentences are, are not really about how people really think or how people really talk, it's just, create an architecture that uh, that sounds good and that reads good on the page right um, and and uh, I think I think that's kind of like the the relationship to language I think my relationship to American literature is uh, probably similar to to yours and others that, that, that are with us it's just um, there are wonderful writers in Latin America just just as in Hungary and uh, and Austria and I like mm -hmm. some of them I don't like some of them uh, I take I take from every region in the world that I can <laughs> you know, uh, but I, I will say one thing uh, that when I was very young uh, and I started to kind of read Latin American literature, and this is this is probably before there was a lot of uh, you, you could that you could buy Latin American literature in Spanish like easily like you could do now. You couldn't do that uh, when I was starting to write. The San Francisco Library had a, a huge Latin American collection in Spanish, um, and that's where I first read uh, by Not in Chile by Bolaño. So. Mm. That, that short book uh, had a big impact. Those kinds of long sentences yeah. and the obliqueness of that book, right? Where it's about this guy who's dying, right? Who did awful, horrible things during the Pinochet era. But he, part of the book is like circling around the fact that he, you know, like all these images that are related to it, but not related, you know, uh, that had a big impact, uh, definitely. And the last question like uh, I have before we open up to Q&A, if anybody has uh, any questions, Um, would be like, so Mauro, like, I have read that, like, it took you a while to write the first book, right? It took you, what was it, 10 years? 12. 12 years. And then suddenly, like, soon afterwards, like, after two years came aphasia. And then you're already talking about a third one. Was it, is it like, becoming exponentially, like, faster, the writing? Or what's going on there? Yeah, you know, it's, uh, I, I think because in the first book, I was still grappling with too many questions at the same time. Like, what is fiction for me? Like, what kind of tradition do I want to be part of? Uh, what's the style that most accommodates what I'm trying to do? What am I trying to do, <laughs> right? All these questions, <laughs> like, you know, they were all kind of happening at the same time. So it took a very long time to figure it out. And at the same time, I was like learning just the basics of fiction, right? So um, I, I felt that when I finished the Revolutionary Affair again, I felt like, oh, I think I, I, think I know what I'm doing. And I almost had like this energy that uh, got bottled up from the first one. And I, and I immediately took that energy to write the second one. And, um, and so I finished this one in three years. I finished the third one in two. Uh, so, you know. This, uh, this means that you're progressively becoming Cesar Aida. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's right. And, you know, because really actually fascinating, at least mm -hmm. to me, is that I have come to realize that the style that I've chosen 
uh, this kind of like taking things out and writing these kind of sentences does not lend itself for novels that are greater than 200 pages. So my second one oh. is like, is like, all, like just the aphasia is almost like is, is exactly 200 pages. Uh, it's just there's the intensity of the of the, the the approach and the fact that you take out so much. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't, you know, you can't write a 500 page, uh, you know, novel in that style. You know, I mean, you could, I guess, but it, it, I had found it not to be a very productive approach. Yeah, and what's in that regard? What's your relationship to books? Because, for example, like I am a the type of reader that like often like feels irresponsible because I often go into books and just read a hundred pages because I'm interested mainly about style and what is happening there and what the writer is doing there. Um, so I was wondering, what's your relationship? Do you always read from beginning to end? Do you like often like Never. enter books and like kind of like exit? Yeah, tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, no, uh, uh, I almost never finish books. Uh, I, I'm usually, because I'm, I've been working on book, you know, writing books, though, you know, almost nonstop since I started the first one. I'm always reading books uh, in, in, in a sort of vague relationship to what I'm writing, right? Uh, And so I'll, I'll open a book, I'll, I'll get the style of the book and be like, okay, I get it, I'm, I'm out. Uh, and then 10 years later, I'll open it again and keep reading it. Uh, uh, I love books that mention other books because then I immediately order those books, right? <laughs> to see like, okay, maybe this book has a connection to what I'm writing. And then I'll order a bunch of books. And then I, sometimes a book will sit there for years and then I'll, I'll be kind of bored at home and I will take it off the shelf and be like, oh wait, this is related, right? Um, you know, and so I, th I think I do a lot of that. I do a lot of uh, kind of reading uh, bits of books, bits of books. And, uh, you know, sometimes that's why I like, you know, uh, writing an essay uh, because it forces me, like when I was uh, writing about Krasna Harkai, I was uh, going to interview Krasna Harkai. I was like, okay, I have to read all his books, right? Take <laughs> a lot of notes, you know, and like all these things. And uh, I actually like like doing that because it, it was focused. But if it weren't for that, like I would like, Like the his last book, like which is wonderful, I save it for for special occasions. I read a hundred pages, and they're like, okay, I'm gonna save the rest, and then I'll read a hundred more, and so on. So it's like a suite. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, Mauro, I think we have a question from Steven Sparks, who is asking if you can talk a little bit about how failure as a theme runs throughout your work. Failure as a theme, yeah, I think there's there's. There's probably a number of failures um, running through the book. And by the way, Stephen Sparks, uh, he, he is the uh, bookseller that uh, and friend who introduced me to my editor uh, at FSG uh, oh, wow. long before he was an editor at FSG. I think one day he just sent an email to both of us saying, you two should meet. <laughs> you like the same books. The absurdist uh, weird books. Anyway, um, I think in aphasia, especially, there's a number of failures. I'll, I'll try to focus on one, which is Antonio is very aware of the failures, his failures towers uh, his former wife, his failure towers his former girlfriends, his failures uh, towers his sister. Um, I think there's a there's there's some passages where Antonio kind of tries to find a way to to almost like mechanically say, I have failed my sister before, I'm about to do it again. What can I do to not sort of accept this failure towards others? You know what I mean? Because it's part of like, we can rationalize our failures when we relate to others fairly easily, right? Because that's the way we, we move on, right? Well, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, and because of our day-to-day -day sort of existence, sometimes when somebody's going through a hard time, We find ways to pretend that they're not, so that you don't have to be with that, right? And so Antonio tries to, through kind of readings, through listening to his mother, I think at some point, like he feels like having sort of his mother's voice on the headphones helps him ground himself to the love he feels for her, even though he doesn't talk to her very often. And that that helps him kind of connect himself to his sister and be able to say, oh my God, like, I love my sister. Uh, we grew up together, even though we were never close as adults. I still have some kind of responsibility towards her. Uh, you know, I must be. Uh, you know, I must be there for her. And at, at some point, like, you know, he finds himself uh, 
finding ways to not talk to her on the phone uh, because he doesn't want to disrupt his work. And so he ends up you know, putting time in his calendar every day. So he blocks time in his calendar so that at that time he'll talk to his sister uh, and it becomes like, like a ritual. So the ritual allows him to uh, be present uh, and not sort of fail her again. Great. So, Mauro, I guess like the last question I had, and I, I wanted to take the opportunity to make it before we run out of time, was regarding information. It seems like it's a novel also about how to just like take all of this information that we have, like, and just try to like build something out of it. And in that sense, it reminded me about like uh, another book that you mentioned here, which was um, uh, Doc's Newberry Port, right, by Lucy Element, and like that whole idea of just like taking everything and just building something out of it. Yeah, I, I think I, I find the association between things to be very beautiful. Meaning like when you take Richard Greaves sort of art and you connect it to Sabold um, and you connect it to, uh, uh, you know, Bernhardt, you know, one of my favorite parts in the book, which I didn't plan was, you know, when the character is like, they're, uh, it's uh, him and his girlfriend reading Chekhov. They're on the train and then they break up and then he's in the train again and he's like listening to Mary Gates go re read Nabokov. Uh, and that sort of, you know, and so there's all these sort of connections. I find those associations, that stream of association, uh, very beautiful. You know what I mean? It's almost like uh -huh. there is a dramatic beauty in disparate images connecting with each other. Um, and to me, like, uh, those impulses that I was talking about and using them as a way to connect certain images is what I, what I really like and, and what I hope becomes what's exciting about those kinds of sentences, right? These linkages become exciting in, in and of themselves, you know? Amazing. And we have one question by, uh, from Gabriela. Gabriela, you ask, want to ask the question or should I just say it out loud? Me, I say it? Good. Uh, so it's high Mauro. Music was very important in your first novel. I was wondering about its importance, either in the form of the novel, um, sentence length or theme. Yeah, definitely. I think uh, the, in, in the second book, uh, Antonio spends a lot of time by himself in the office listening to Messiah and Arbopard and Steve Reich. And when I was writing the book, uh, I was listening to Steve Reich quite a bit. And a lot of the pieces that are very repetitive, right? Um, uh, I think Eight Lines is the one that I listen to the most uh, from Steve Reich. And that musicality where there's a certain sort of uh, pulse, right? And Steve Reich often talks about that pulse in his pieces, right? There's always these pulses and things happen around it. Uh, was, was actually very influential, I think, in the sentence because the, the impulse is the pulse, right? And then everything around it, it's kind of what I'm trying to sort of connect together. And so I have also, I have found that, uh, especially in the second one and the third one, that that's the best way for me to write, to listen to these kinds of long pieces that, uh, that sort of so-called minimalist pieces that have that sort of pulse um, help me because rhythm uh, is, a, is a way to keep a long sentence going, right? where you're trying to connect two things that are, are disparate to one another, uh, rhythm and sound allow you to connect it. So the reader kind of through sound thinks that they're connected, right? Uh, and so I think that's, that's definitely an influence uh, both on the first one and the second one. Great, is there well, another question? Uh, I think otherwise, Mauro, I think we're getting close to the, to the hour, uh, but amazing book. Uh, buy it, uh, aphasia. It's as Maru was saying right now. I hadn't thought Maru about that idea of like seriality and like Steve Reich, but definitely there is that like idea of it. It's kind of like a pulse that begins to gather and gather, kind of like in a kind of like hurricane almost sort of way, and kind of begins to build. And halfway through, you as a reader really begin to like feel that like kind of the emotional power of the novel. So, anyways, Maru, congratulations. Try uh, 
Felicidades. Well, Carlos, thank you so much. You're such a great interviewer. Mauro, congratulations. This is really such an awesome book. Thank you. And, you know, encouraging everyone, you know, we've posted links. Uh, buy a book. It supports City Lights. Uh, it's a good cause. You know, we're not out of the woods as far as COVID, you know, we we're kind of trying to make the ends meet. So every book you buy really kind of goes towards kind of keeping us alive. We're going to be posting this event on YouTube in the next few days. So kind of keep an eye on our social media and uh, you know, also check out our calendar. There's a bunch of stuff coming up. You know, we have this really cool event with um, this guy wrote a book on Sun Ra and uh, his connection Ooh. to Chicago. That's going to be coming up in December. Uh, we've got Ishmael Reed kind of reading poetry. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff. So, you know, keep an eye on the calendar uh, drop by the store, you know, we're there seven days a week, open at noon. Um, and look forward to seeing you all really, really soon. Thank you. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you. Ciao. Buenas noches. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast from City Lights Bookstore and Publishers. Our theme music was provided by Axolotl. All City Lights events are free. To see upcoming events at City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco, check out www.citylights.com events.